This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Keywords for Capitalism, Power, Society, Politics by John Patrick Leary. Keywords for Capitalism is a probing and insightful guide designed to equip readers with the tools to understand the evasions, neologisms, and half-truths that crowd the discourse, revealing the ideology of the mainstream political media that lies just below the surface. John Patrick Leary carefully leads readers through the very real debates about words that really do mean something, attentively distinguishing the substance worth preserving from the froth that should be dismissed. As Greg Grandin puts it, John Patrick Leary is our most valuable lexicographer of capitalism. He's given us a serious and much-needed handbook to help those who want to challenge capital to avoid falling into its semantic sand traps. Keywords for Capitalism by John Patrick Leary, out now from Haymarket Books and available on haymarketbooks.org where U.S. and U.K. readers receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £25, respectively. You can also check out my really excellent 2019 interview with John Patrick Leary. It's in the archives at thedigradio.com. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Nelson Lichtenstein is among the greatest living American labor historians. Today's episode is a conversation with Lichtenstein conducted by guest host Micah Utrecht, editor of Jacobin. Their conversation is wide-ranging, beginning with Lichtenstein's life and education at the University of California, Berkeley, in the midst of that campus's many eruptions in the 1960s. The intellectual and activist influence of his membership in the International Socialists, a Trotskyist organization, his years studying the early United Auto Workers and Congress of Industrial Organizations, or CIO, his later turn to studying Walmart and international supply chains, his continued appreciation for radical politics and radical activists organizing despite leaving Trotskyism behind, his thoughts about the state of labor history, and a lot more. Okay, you're probably ready for the interview because it's a really good one. But before we get started, I do want a brief moment with those of you who regularly listen to this podcast but don't yet contribute, even though you can afford to. I know it's easy to ignore these sorts of requests. But if the dig is an important part of your life, please contribute a little to ensure our long-term financial viability at patreon.com slash the dig. Another big reason that you should contribute is because a contribution of any amount at all, any amount, gets you our really excellent weekly newsletter by email. If you finish a dig interview wanting more context, eager to find what to read or listen to next, you've got to get our newsletter. We also have swag, books, tote bags, mugs for contributions of $10 or more a month. Please contribute now. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. If you depend on this pod, know that we depend on you. Please contribute. Okay, here's Nelson Lichtenstein, the author or editor of 18 books and research professor in the Department of History at the University of California, Santa Barbara. A Fabulous Failure, 
the Clinton presidency and the transformation of American capitalism, co-authored with the late historian Judith Stein, will be published by Princeton University Press in September. Nelson Lichtenstein, welcome to The Dig. Glad to be here. Before we get into any questions about your historical scholarship, I want to start with some basic biographical questions. So you write in your essay collection, A Contest of Ideas, about being the son of a German Jew who fled the Nazis at the time of World War II and an American mother who fled Mississippi around the same time. And so you came of age during the civil rights movement era. Is that how you were first politicized? Yeah, well, yes. Although at the dinner table, there was a kind of a my, my father was sort of a social democrat. My mother was a was a, a, a hostile to the to the Gothic South, you know, and all of its aspects. And so I, I think that even before the civil rights movement, but but yes, of course, the civil rights was a a, a moment for for every one of my generation, and and absolutely that was uh, decisive. I was extraordinarily um, energized by that. I, I I didn't go to Mississippi in sixty two. Sixty-three, you know, I, and but I did go. I did end up in Mrs. in Alabama in, in the summer of sixty-six. A little late, a little late for well, not exactly late, but anyway. But yes, of course, it was it was extraordinarily important. Absolutely, my father, by the way, ran ran this five and dime store in in Frederick, Maryland. Of course, Maryland, sort of a border state, and you could see the racial dynamics of the in terms of the clientele and the sales, and the, the town was segregated. My town was. Uh, and I just uh, became of age, just as just as desegregation was 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 taking place. And what was that experience in 1966 like for you? You must have been an undergraduate at that point. Yeah, yes, I was. I, I actually I went to Alabama to work for a a, 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 mag, a a newspaper called the Southern Courier, which was really uh, funded by by northern liberals, not uh, kind of somewhere in and around the Kennedys. Or Bobby Kennedy, and we were trying to, you know, have a, a, another kind of break the media boycott in a way of, of about the civil rights movement, even 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 at that late in '66. Uh, it had been, and I was posted to Selma and uh, Mobile and Lowndes County, and you know, it was it was <laughs> it was revealing. I remember seeing Stokely Carmichael speak in a small Southern church, and that was very impressive. And it was a, it you know, it it, it was the, you know, I, I saw a social movement in reality, and that's extraordinarily um, extraordinary experience. It, it it stays with you for your life. Now, I wasn't myself, you know, like um, it, like even three years earlier, four years earlier, where, you know, when when people were in, in Mississippi in sixty one and sixty two, I mean, their life were in danger. I, I I that was not the case at all with me. But nevertheless, I could see the the nature of the um, of, of the struggle, and also I could see what success was because um, I, when I was in Selma, uh, I remember going to, I, I don't know, one day it was hot. I thought, I'm going to go to some air-conditioned restaurant and have a nice breakfast, you know, <laughs> just sort of take a break. And I go in there, and there's a, 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 a placemat, which already, by the summer of 66, 
I had the march on the Edmund Pettus Bridge as sort of one of the historic events of Selma, you know. So it had already been sort of a kind of, histo- you know, kind of almost naturalized and made part of the, okay, this is what's happened, you know. So it was, uh, it was, uh, that I thought that, I remember thinking that. I said, this is, this is 18 months. This is, you know, this is, this is what happens when a social movement wins. And shortly after that, you started graduate school in history. At yeah, I went, yes, I went, went to Berkeley. Yes, yeah. And right. you joined the Trotskyist group, the International Socialists, shortly thereafter, right? Well, I think it probably took two years, or, or I mean, I, I was um, probably two. I don't know, maybe probably two years. I'm not sure. I was just a, I was an activist in the in the movement of that of that moment. But uh, and I and a lot of my friends were in the in it. But I didn't. I didn't instantly. I, I didn't. I didn't know about it. Some people went to Berkeley from like New York or Madison, <laughs> Chicago. They do exactly what they wanted to do when they got there. That wasn't the case with me. So, but I was very, I remember I was very impressed with the, the you know, every table, uh, every organization had a leaflet and the, and the leaflets of the international socialists were like, you know, legal size, double space, single, you know, no, excuse me, single space, no margins, you know, kind of a, an entire, you know, thesis from, 1917 to the present and what we do about it. So I was, I was sort of impressed by that. But, and I came around, a lot of the people in the history department, uh, grad students were in the IS. And so I uh, came around that and I began to, uh, you know, participate in their activities, uh, you know, within, I'd say a, 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 a two years, really, probably two years. And at this point, the IS played a pretty key role in Berkeley as a whole, in the civil rights movement, in the free speech movement that was kicking off in Berkeley around that time. They'd been, well, I went to, I mean, frankly, I went to Berkeley because of the free speech movement. I said, well, this is somewhere I want to be. The, uh, yes, the, I, the, the IS, which had been the Independent Socialist Club, and of course, your your listeners should know it. It, it was the Shackmanite um, uh, wing of the Trotskyist movement, and and that means just to be very quick about it, uh, the view of the Soviet Union, which was the crucial question, what's the Russian question? The Shackmanites thought the Soviet Union was a bureaucratic collectivist state, whereas the uh, other wing of the Trotskyist movement, uh, you know, thought, oh, it's a degenerated workers' state. Well, those. Those, those actually, well, there were there were consequences that flowed from from those two different points of view. So, so the so the international social, the, no, the independent socialist clubs later, the international socialists had been very active in the um, in the uh, free speech movement. Hal Draper's essay, the the mind of Clark Kerr, was very influential. And really, you know, talking about the university as a bureaucratic machine. I mean, this this came out of the how do you, how do you define the the, the new regime in the, in the Soviet Union? Um, in part. And um, so Hal Draper was a leading figure then and, and, and many others. And uh, I, I found it a very vital, both intellectually stimulating and also, um, but not just a discussion section. It, you know, we, every, every meeting, what is, what do we do? What is to be done? I mean, that was the question, you know, we, okay, we can analyze and discuss and then what is to be done? You know, that was always, what do we do tomorrow? You know, so I found that a, a very um, vibrant and um, stimulating and you write in a contest of ideas about how many of your comrades from the IS went off to industrialize to get jobs in the industrial Midwest in uh, industries like auto and in steel. Uh, and also, you say something that I found very surprising that you almost came into being a public intellectual by your engagement in what the IS was doing and trying to stoke rank and file militancy within 
the UAW in the Bay Area when you were writing leaflets that you were going to be handing out at the factory gates, right? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, well, yes. Well, I mean, we we had this big discussion. It was sort of, it was part of a general new left turn to the working class. Uh, but I mean, although the, of course, the, the Trotskyists of all varieties thought that the working class was, you know, a central mode, mode, uh, lever of history. So, but we had a big discussion in, in 69, 70, and 71 about, you know, where to, what to do, where to go, to, moving off campus, you know, to to the industrial Midwest. And, and if you may remember, this period, 69, 70, 70, this was a kind of Indian summer of worker militancy. There was a lot going on, drum, of course, and, and uh, but also all sorts of wildcat strikes. And, and, and you know, the strike levels were very high in this period, and, and, and many were off, unauthorized. So that we had this big discussion. The other, the other alternative to the Midwest was, well, you know, who are we? We're, we're kind of, you know, middle class, uh, you know, uh, you know, literate people get a job as a school teacher or go to the, go work in a hospital or, you know, that kind of thing. And, and, and uh, yeah, actually I think the, I mean, that wasn't, uh, there was, it was not a hard decision. It wasn't as, but people who did become school teachers weren't like, you know, oh, that's the wrong thing to do. But it was, you know, I think the, the general thrust was we're, we're going to go to the Midwest. And they did. And a, a Labor Notes, the, which has been in existence for more than 40 years, came out of that and, and you know, headquartered in Detroit and, and, uh, and then and the whole and the Labor Notes conferences that they have. But, oh, yes. So, one of, yes, one of the moments there that was quite um, striking was uh, I can, it was September 14th, the night of September 14th, 1970, when we went down to the um, Fremont, to the General Motors assembly plant to uh, sort of greet and spur on uh, the um, the big strike against General Motors, which was taking place, the first one really in 25 years since 1946, 45, 46. And uh, it was striking because um, there was unquestionably a sense of of excitement and rebelliousness on the part of the workers who rushed out of the plant, you know, when the long before midnight when the strike was supposed to begin. But at the same time, I just I, I the, the signs that the UAW itself had prepared were very kind of neutered and, and, and sort of uninspiring. I remember one strike, one sign I saw and I said, what is this? It said, UAW demands equity. I said, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> and the uh, the workers grabbed our signs, which were things like, you know, GM mark of exploitation. And uh, I think that, um, uh, or, or things of that sort. And I, I think that part of the impulse that led me to become a labor historian was was that contradiction that I saw at that night. But although it also, of course, came out of many, many discussions that we'd had. The, I later wrote a biography of Walter Ruther, and Ruther was kind of always a figure that was, little, where did he go wrong? Where did he go right? You know, this was sort of all part of the discourse that was always, you know, coursing through uh, our discussions of, of labor, you know, at that time. I have been working on a book that's based on in, uh, interviews with the people from the IS and from other radical traditions of that era who industrialized in the Midwest and in other places during this time. Uh, and, and they, as you mentioned, they, they formed institutions like Labor Notes and Teamsters for a Democratic Union and all kinds of militant rank and file currents that are still with us uh, today. But you went into academia, you were in graduate school, and obviously you become this labor historian. And you've also left behind your Trotskyism. You left it behind a while ago. And it's striking to me that 
for a lot of people who leave a tradition, whether it's the Communist Party or a Trotskyist group or Trotskyism or whatever it is, there's almost this uh, need to perform penance by many of them. They be, they become an ex-radical and then they have to go through this sort of like quasi-Catholic ritual where they denounce all their past sins and they and they you know beg for forgiveness for their past sins. But that doesn't seem like that's the case for you. That you have you've stayed close to the, your former comrades and still have an appreciation for what they uh, accomplished on shop floors and the intellectual perspective that they bring. Oh yeah, no, I know, I know. I'm not. There's no god that failed here. Um, uh, <laughs> I, 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 I mean, in fact, I could put it in this context. We would always have these discussions, even in the early '70s, when we were, there was a kind of revolutionary m- mood going on. I remember the, the banner that the my group used during when the People's Park, um, you know, events took place. There was a big, uh, you know, uh, demonstrations that actually someone got killed. And, and I remember the banner that, that we held was international socialists say smash the state. I mean, you know, I mean, that's your that's your uh, transitional demand. You know, anyway. So but I would put it this way. We were always having discussions as to what period is this? Is this a period of conservatism? Is this a period of, of uh, radicalization, a pre-revolutionary period? Uh, you know, I mean, so in one sense, I mean, I, I think the fact is, uh, you know, it, it clearly wasn't a, a pre-revolutionary period. It's a period of, you know, of, of, of it's a mixed bag. And in that, in that context, uh, I think social democratic politics are appropriate. Now, if there's a turning of the, of the, of the wheel in such a way that, that real things are happening in, in a, as they have abroad at various moments, well, then, yes, I'm in favor that, that I, I'm ready to join the, join the, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the Vanguard party once again. I mean, I'm not against a, uh, I, I, I'm still kind of a, a bit of a Leninist in terms of, I think you should have majorities that, that vote. And then when you, when you agree on what you're going to do, you, you, people do it. So I know I don't, I don't think uh, I, I, there's no God that failed. And, and if the time would come or if I look abroad, whether it's South Africa or some other revolutionary moment, uh, then yes, that, we need a revolution if, if it can be done. But you have to have the, the right uh, arrangement of power and blocks and consciousness for that to happen. And if it isn't there, then don't then, then it's silly. Then it's ridiculous to 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 be a to put forward a uh, a, a, a sort of Trotskyist or, or whatever revolutionary dema- uh, proposal when, when it's going to fall on deaf ears because the, the period is not right for it. I was surprised to learn that you struggled to land an academic job for several years after you got your PhD and you were a bit adrift after grad school. That's absolutely yeah. that that story made me think of the current state of academia and the dearth of tenure track jobs that has been much discussed and how even young scholars who don't feel adrift and who do jump through all the correct hoops and publish papers in prestigious journals and all the rest of it are still unable to find jobs. So in 2023, a newly minted Ph.D. with your same post-grad school life circumstances probably would not have a prayer in academia. Well, yeah, I mean, although, I mean, I was, yeah, in an, in an, all during the 70s, I was in and out of academia. I went into publishing a little bit. I went to, I worked for the Social Security Administration a little bit. I worked for, for, you know, here and there. I would say there were two things going on there. One was the, which is 
because absolutely the same case today, just the growth of austerity in, in academia and the lack of jobs and then overproduction, maybe you could call it that, of PhDs or something like that. And that's true then and, and today. That's just a, a general uh, case, uh, uh, which is there. But the but there was something very specific uh, in terms of, of, of my what I was interested in. It wasn't quite that, oh, Lichtenstein's a big radical. We, we don't want to hire him. That wasn't quite it. But what it was, was that I was doing... A, a certain kind of labor history. I wasn't studying the Knights of Labor, okay? I wasn't studying, you know, uh, the Chartists. You know, I was studying the post-Wagner Act world of, 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 of unions and, and negotiations and all sorts of stuff like that. Well, the people who absolutely dominated that field were the labor economists. And so uh, it wasn't just that I had trouble getting, getting a, a job. I had trouble getting published. I had trouble getting published because uh, I would send out manuscripts or or my book, and it would go to, and instantly go to the you know the, the editors would say, well, who knows about this? Oh, the labor economists. So they'd send it to the labor economists, and they'd say, what's this? Where are the equations? You know, I mean, you know, where where, where are the data sets? You know, uh, what is this? The the Wagner Act and and the, and the, and the kind of industrial relations we have today. Is, is a wonderful success. And by the way, at that moment, in that period, the 60s and even in the 70s, this was uh, industrial relations as a kind of academic discipline was at the very height of its prestige. Uh, the Clark Kerrs and Derek Box and others were either presidents of universities or cabinet officers. And that, and that industrial, and I was writing, all of my work was, was in, in, against the industrial relations orthodoxy of those, of that era. So that also was the, was a problem. And, and, I can I can give you the precise date at which that changed, <laughs> uh, both sort of in academia and outside of it. It was a meeting of the of the Social Science History Association in Rochester, and it was sort of a coming out party for labor historians of the post Wagner Act period. And I remember my people on my panel was Josh Freeman, who has written very good books on New York, and Steve Fraser, of course, who's a written many, many excellent uh, pieces. And sitting right there in the front row was Dave Montgomery and E.P. Thompson. And, you know, it was like, okay, you know, the kind of cultural story and social historians of the 19th century, let's take a look at what's happening in the 20th, you know? And, and that was sort of the, that was a kind of a moment. I remember when, when, and I think that quickly got translated into what the world of publishing and, and maybe, you know, what other, you know, hiring committees were doing. Well, this brings us nicely to your first book, which was based on your dissertation, Labor's War at Home, the CIO in World War II. That book is interesting to look back on now because it focuses on the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the Industrial Union Federation that really took off around the time of the Great Depression and was home to the main currents of radicalism and militancy and experimentation and excitement in the labor movement during that era. And your book covers how the CIO and its unions were tamed in large part by the state over the course of World War II. And your contention was that that process essentially defanged the labor movement in ways that reverberated for the rest of American labor history up to present. But a new edition of the book was published by Temple University Press in 2003, and you wrote a new introduction that doesn't seem to fully reject the book, but also doesn't indicate that you exactly 
stand by all of it as your ideas about these things uh, have changed over time. So can you talk about that process of your thinking changing on the questions that you tackle in Labor's War at Home? Yes. Well, the book came right out of debates within the my Trotskyist group uh, over the nature of, of the relationship with the working class and, and the unions and the state. And people like uh, Hal Draper uh, had, had been, you know, at, and, and Harvey Suedos and, and, and uh, um, all sorts of people around us had been, you know, adults and, and, and participants in, in World War II activities. And I saw, we, we, and also the, the, the tradition of, the, of, of my group of, of the Trotskyist movement had been uh, hostile to the No Strike Pledge. My, the dissertation was in, was entitled uh, "The CIO Under the No Strike Pledge," and and so they were they were fighting against it, and this was a big fight inside many of the unions. So I was very much uh, you know engaged with that, and and the book is it, and the book follows you know in some ways what what was being what we were thinking about and, and doing, and and in, in, uh, in but both what the what the was called the Workers Party back in the nineteen forties, what they were doing, and then our subsequent thinking about it. And I do think that you know there was a kind of um, there was a kind of bureaucratization of the unions, and of course that was advanced not with both in the unions and also by the state. Uh, and I, I you know there were I mean the, the labor history part of it part of the argument of that book was labor history didn't end with the Wagner Act, it didn't end with the legal creation. of of, of unions, there was this whole uh, thing going on in World War II as well. Now, it is true. So, what has happened? Why have I changed my mind a, a bit, a, to a degree? When I was writing the book, it was a period of, again, this this sort of era of wildcat strikes and uh, in Indian summer of militancy, Lordstown, you know, and, and you know, it was going on all sorts of things of that sort. Subsequently. We got Reagan, <laughs> you know. We got much more conservatives, and I and I came to see that consciousness is episodic, and what a social movement has to do, really, I think, uh, is to capture that 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 to translate that that consciousness, that heightened consciousness, whatever it is, whether civil rights or labor or, or, or feminism for that matter, and and institutionalize it in some way in a law or an organization, because consciousness is not always at its at its height. And so I became, obviously, after Reagan, you know, I, I became, you know, uh, well, yeah, we, we need to figure out how to do that. So therefore, I see that um, uh, as a as a bit more um, that that's what has to happen. Now, the civil rights movement sort of successfully, at least to a degree, successfully did that with civil rights laws, you know, which are and then for a variety of reasons, they they, they, they seem to be enforced much better than than labor laws. But that that I that I came to see I, I went to a, I'm going to a to a talk by E.P. Thompson somewhere in the early 80s or something. And he he was giving it at Berkeley, I think, or I don't know where it was, somewhere. And he was, I think he was writing about the Chartist movement. And he said, you know, a social movement has a sort of lifespan of about six years, you know, kind of. I mean, it may continue in some deracinated fashion, but basically six years. And if it doesn't sort of succeed in that moment, then... You know, that's so I thought, yeah, in a way that that's what social movements do. And you've got to and in that period, you've got to institutionalize it somehow. Well, institutions also mean you're making a deal really with the with the with the state, with your opponents, you know. And and so, you know, I, yes, to, to, to do that degree, I think the 
the whole era of, of Reagan and after uh, had an impact on on my on my scholarship and my and, and the way actually not just me uh, it was the way all sort of all of my comrades you know thought about okay what can we do what's what's to be done next you know you're changing thinking on the period and on the nature of this bureaucratization must I mean you must have looked back for example to previous periods of American labor militancy where there would be an upsurge and then workers would flood into unions and they would make some gains, but then without the creation of those of, of durable institutional structures that can eke out some basic rights for workers on the jobs and, and establish uh, their ability to, you know, to, to institutionalize gains and in pay and benefits and all of those things that, that it, it sounds like, unlike those previous periods of worker militancy and upsurge, uh, the, the New Deal era and then the post-World War II period were periods where you, you came to realize that actually something important was won in that bureaucratization and in, 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 those, uh, in that engagement with the state, whereas previously you had seen uh, labor's engagement with the state solely in terms of conservatism and losing the right to strike and, and just smashing that militancy. Yeah, yeah, I think that's it. And I think, I mean, I don't think I, I'm unique in, in any way in, in, in seeing that. I think that's a whole generation and, and it came to see that. But I mean, of course, you can go too far on that and, you know, and you can, you can, you know, become a, a kind of, a, you know, just a sort of a, a politician, you know, uh, and then and then a kind of incre- incrementalism has its own problems and, and its own de-radicalization. It, there's no, there's no substitute for a kind of radicalization, which has a, a level of consciousness. Consciousness uh, that goes along with it, and I, I have to say, one reason I didn't want to, I didn't industrialize, I, I, I didn't go to Detroit, and uh, and uh, although I have worked in factories, I chose not to do. It. I did think there was a role for you know for academics, and and especially back in those days, I mean, the, the academy was pretty conservative on many ways, and I thought you know I saw myself as a as a kind of engagé uh, in in the academy. I'll tell you one little story. I, I was I learned something from feminists on this question. I, I may, I may have, uh, at one one moment uh, in the early seventies, I was uh, in my group. By the way, it was it was considered kind of gauche to to talk about your academic work. This was considered, a, a, you know, you don't want to do that. So I remember I was I was I had a bunch of leaflets, and I was walking over to Ruth Rosen's apartment. She became, she was, and she became a very famous and, and, and very influential feminist historian. And uh, to hand her, hand her the leaflets for something. And so, I'm, I, you know, I'm stuck on our door. I didn't know that well. And I, and I give her the leaflets and she says, oh, you know, yeah, I'm trying to work. There's some kids in, the, in this playground next door making a lot of noise and I can't do my work. And I thought, what? She, A, she's complaining about these local, you know, kids from the ghetto. And B, she's saying she can't do her work. And then it sort of dawned on me, of course, her work was part of a kind of, you know, sort of social movement. I mean, you know, the, 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 the creation of a feminist uh, a narrative about American history, etc. And, and then uh, uh, that was important. And then, my, and then my current spouse, Eileen Boris, when I, I met her later on in the decade, and, and, and you know, also, again, the, the feminists didn't have that problem. They didn't have that issue that others of us did, you know. So anyway, so I, I thought that I thought there was a role for me in academia, especially in this period when industrial relations was a whole ideology, which frankly was was completely, you know, hostile to, you know, the idea of rank and file activism and such. I want to return to your ideas about the importance of labor intellectuals uh, a little bit later. But to uh, ask another question about uh, labor's war at home, you write 
that you sort of came around to uh, having a more nuanced view on the bureaucratic processes that were created uh, in the labor movement during this period. Uh, one one example of how you came come to how you came around on this question was uh, the question of black workers fighting racism on the job. That for many black industrial workers, the creation of these bureaucratic processes, rather than workers having to slug it out on the factory floor to, to uh, win and maintain any kind of gain that they were making. Um, for these black workers, they use these bureaucratized parts, you know, the, the, they use the contract uh, as a way to fight racial inequality on the job. And so this, this is one of the things that helped lead you to a sort of more nuanced version of, uh, of what was going on uh, with these new bureaucratic structures and with the quote-unquote taming of these industrial unions in this period. Yeah, right. Well, this is, yeah, this is actually a very controversial question to, to, uh, even today, and, and not, so certainly not everyone would agree with what I think. But I think, I think yes, in, insofar as you, you have a, a union which uh, and has a contract or, or, or an agreement procedure, and you have to have a certain level of 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 uh, consistency and commonality uh, in terms of uh, you know uh, seniority and and all sorts of questions of that sort. Then, from the point of view of a of an African American or or a woman or or any other marginalized figure, this sort of it's sort of bringing the law, bringing bourgeois rights to the shop floor, and that's exceedingly important. I, I, I bureaucracy will set you free. That is, you know, when it, when when it says you know uh, equal justice under law at a courthouse, well. A union contract is saying sort of the same thing, and 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 yes, it's a it's a structure with rules and this and that. But African American workers in the nineteen thirties and forties could use that, and and they did. Now, what happens later on is their standard goes up. In other words, what African Americans or any other uh, a marginalized group uh, is demanding. I mean, they they don't just always demanding the same thing. They they start you know well we've been historically discriminated against, so we should have affirmative action or you know we we you know or this seniority system. Actually, if you look at it, it's actually favorable to whites versus blacks because of the, you know. And so so by the nineteen fifties and sixties, you begin to get other demands, and then and then and then you know uh, by that point, I think what what happens is the unions have become much more kind of uh, well bureaucratic and kind of, you know, fix a fixed, uh, you know, kind of, and, and, um, and therefore there's more, there's resistance from the union itself more, I think more so than even back in the, in the, in the thirties and forties. Um, I mean, you can have a racist union where, you know, the leadership is, you know, that doesn't want to have, you know, dances with, you know, blacks and whites together, but if they're trying, if they have to enforce the contract, you know, uh, on the shop floor, you're, you know, it's going to be advantageous to African-Americans. That happened in Birmingham, Alabama, where the steelworkers had Ku Klux Klan guys in there in the leadership. But the, uh, you know, when they if they're forcing the contract, it, it would have an impact. It would have a, uh, a somewhat uh, uh, egalitarian impact. So um, but that's still highly, highly uh, uh, contentious. And you can find other historians who would who would tilt that argument a, a different direction. Well, and also the flip side of that, which I believe you write about in the Walter Ruther biography, is that in the period in Detroit, when there were these hate strikes that were carried out, uh, they, they, they were carried out by some number of white rank and file auto workers against black workers coming to the factories. And it is the newly created bureaucracies of the UAW 
Walter, Walter Ruther and his, his crew in, in the union who have these newly created official union positions uh, because of the processes that you describe in Labor's War at Home. They are the ones who then are able, through the bureaucratic procedure, to step into the union and, and, and smash these hate strikes and say, well, no, we're, we're, this is not what this union stands for. And, and, the, and the, you know, the, the narrative that sees the bureaucrats only as dastardly and defanging the union how does well, how do you then explain how the the more the uh, the leadership that is actually more progressive than the rank and file steps in on this racist issue and 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 makes the union uh, and the union bureaucracy uh, a vehicle for uh, for achieving more racial justice on the shop floor? Yeah, well, that th- that phrase you use, by the way, is is a is a really hot button one. The bureaucracy being more progressive than the rank and file. That that was the defense of of, of every bureaucrat uh, in this period. Uh, Rutherites and others, much worse. You know, uh, oh, the the rank and file is a bunch of racists or a bunch of whatever. It's a, it's a complicated dialectical thing because unless the ordinary workers can see the possibilities of of, of activity liberating them, then yes, they could easily become much more conservative. Because by the way, in the war, of course, the the, the union leadership would often call on the state as you know to to come in and intervene and so that you know that that was a double problem yeah yes yeah I mean again consciousness is not uniform the the at various moments uh, you know ordinary workers are are terrible racist and and misogynistic and everything else but at other moments there's possibilities of liberation and and I think a a, a leadership a, a genuine leadership has to be has to understand at certain times to take advantage of that now the law and the politics and the Democratic Party and everything else creates these these sort of iron cages into which um, uh, activists are, are, are struck. And one of my thematics in the, in the biography of Walter Ruther is that he became a prisoner of the institutions he helped to create, you know, and uh, he, he found by the end of his life, uh, he was frustrated uh, in that respect. But, uh, but yes, the, 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 uh, uh, and by the way, the, the highly content, a figure like Herbert Hill, uh, who was the NAACP's um, uh, liaison to the union movement in the 1950s, and a very admirable figure uh, in many, many ways. And he hated my, both, well, actually all of my work because he, did, he didn't, he didn't see, I, I, I didn't like condemn the leadership as sort of racist in the most personal, almost old-fashioned sense. You know what I mean? Like, you know, a kind of like a, you know, just personally uh, racist. I mean, I, they weren't. That wasn't their problem. Their, their problem was more institutional and structural. Anyway, of course, I interviewed Herbert Hill, and I don't know if, that, I don't know if your listeners know who he is. He was a, a very prominent figure in the in the 50s and 60s and, and, and 70s um, in, in, in advancing uh, civil Af- African-American interests and civil rights within the labor movement. So, how would you sort of summarize your evolution on these questions over time? I mean, obviously, you have not become somebody who got, went from being complete, you know, painting a union leadership uh, as sort of inherently evil. You seem to think that uh, there are times when there does need to be independent action of a union bureaucracy. You also write about the union's relationship to the Democratic Party. Clearly, the labor movement has to have some level of independence from the Democratic Party. And if it doesn't, it, 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 it as you mentioned before, it slips into this kind of conservatism and it can't be the dynamic social movement uh, that you want it to uh, become. But you're, you're not you're not sort of like uh, saying that it has to be one or the other. Either the, the union bureaucracy is 
dastardly foe or it is the the you know who we should put our hopes in that there there, there has to be a, a, a kind of dialectical relationship between these things yeah and, and you can and you can move the whole thing to the left i mean that you, you can either with it with new people coming in you know or moving people who were who were once uh, you know uh, stick in, stuck in the muds moving them to the left i mean i think that there's a, there's a, there's a definitely a, an opening and a, and a place for organization rank and file organization and politics and, and moving forward i i identify and have for decades with labor notes uh, whose uh, you know slogan is let's put the movement back in the labor movement i mean they've been around for more than 40 years actually historically there's been no opposition <laughs> a kind of i don't know what you call it uh, paper they're kind of an organization that's been around for 40 years in the history of american labor i don't think you could find that anyway uh identify with them and uh they uh you know uh, clearly uh, are, are have every every ch- chance they get they have uh, advocated uh the election or the use of the strike weapon to shift the labor movement to the left and and there are many places that can be done and and is being done as we speak uh with this big election in the UAW as we speak so um but that's maybe that's a little that's different from saying that you can i mean trade unions actually by their nature are are not actually they aren't revolutionary institutions they they just aren't they that the whole point is to cut a deal i mean that's that's the whole point and then you're stuck with the deal you know until the next time and that sometimes can be demobilizing so uh that that's why uh you know, we need other forms of, of protest and other forms of whether it's political action on the one side or 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 intellect you you know writers and intellectuals and and, and people uh, you know uh, of the sort who put out places pieces like Jacobin and Descent and whatnot as a way of changing consciousness. Well, let's talk about the Walter Ruther biography. This is maybe the book that you are most famous for, rightly so. Um, and just to begin with. The book really captures the sense of excitement and possibility that was present at the time of the early UAW and the CIO. The The labor movement is there, there is significant movement in the labor movement in this period. It's uh, a richly contested democratic space where uh, workers are doing all kinds of things. They're engaging in incredibly brave and creative actions on shop floors. Uh, and uh, Walter Ruther is at the center of uh, many of those fights, particularly around the UAW. And he comes across as as dynamic of a labor leader as the United States has ever produced. I kept thinking while I was reading the book that in a different country and context, uh, he could have been a presidential candidate for a labor party, which I think some people in the book then later on actually bring up as a possibility because his his, his dynamism and, and, and the kind of creative strategic thinking that he brought to the labor movement was, was so palpable for them. Um, and uh, at the most basic level, reading this book made me realize, oh, yeah, it makes sense that someone who would dig into these archives around the early period of the UAW and the CIO and be lit on fire, in, you know, intellectually in reading all and, and want to uh, explore the in, in so much depth, the figure, a figure like Walter Ruther, because it, uh, it was just such a, especially right now at a time when we don't, despite the uh, advances that are happening in the labor movement right now, we don't 
associate the labor movement with this, the kind of upheaval of, of this period. And in, in your book, you certainly get the sense uh, that that was, a, if you were on the left in left politics in any way, the labor movement was where you wanted to be because so much was going on with the building of these early industrial unions. Right, he's a touchstone, a kind of a, 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 sometimes a, a sore nerve, and sometimes for for everyone on the left. That is, here's a figure, undoubtedly, he'd been a socialist, actually flirted with communism, but a socialist was a very very competent. It wasn't just himself; he had a whole he had a whole you know cadre around him. Oh, uh, and then he, he becomes uh, the, he becomes the leader of a union with mil- with a million members, and not just any union, not like a grocery union. This is a union that that is organized the commanding heights, you know, of world capitalism. I mean, what company is more important than General Motors in this period? None, zero. Um, so yes, so, so 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 there's enormous potential. And then also, of course, great disappointment. So that's why everyone on the left has, at least they used to, <laughs> you had to have, you know, a, a opinion on Walter Ruther, and it was always a very, uh, a very contentious one. And uh, I, I, I started off with this, um, with writing this. I said, you know, I've, we've got to write about him. And I saw all the the negatives. There've been, you know, a whole, you know, the whole world of negatives. I mean, he didn't, you know, he didn't fulfill his promise, or the UAW didn't fulfill its promise. But as I got into it, I, I, I. I sort of try to see what was what was attractive about him to so many people, you know, and and also what was what was sort of then you know disappointing. One of the things I think Ruther did again, this sort of changed my my perspective on some things was that he was clearly trying to construct a corporatist governance of American industry. You know, that was one of the things that he was doing in the war and shortly thereafter. And corporatism uh, it can be kissing, kissing cousin to fascism on the one side, but on the other hand, it's sort of kissing cousin to a kind of tripartite, you know, kind of social democratic governance. And I became uh, increasingly interested in that. Uh, and in fact, um, uh, you know, because in, in Europe and, and other places, the, 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 that's gone a, a good deal farther. So, so Ruther was trying to do that. But, there, but again, there are many pitfalls in that because it, it makes you a, a collaborationist with, you know, with the companies and the, and the state. But, um, yeah, there's no, I mean, yes, the as, as I think one of the, one person wrote about, uh, you know, for U, U, UAW activists and intellectuals, uh, you know, it's like a true religion. The UAW was a substitute. It was, it was a substitute in the minds of, of a whole generation from Michael Harrington on down, uh, you know, to the to the American Labor Party that should have existed, you know, and 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 big debates did take place. The Ruther kept got himself reelected time and again. He he created this machine that's uh, now um, uh, being uh, challenged in the current election. But nevertheless, um, there was a, even with even with his leadership, uh, there was a lot of debate going on inside the UAW at various other levels, and I found that very exciting over all sorts of questions, uh, whether it was the cost of living adjustments or or what to do about Taft Hartley, or what to do about uh, you know uh, big issues like health insurance, or 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 how to how to intervene in the civil rights movement, or and the new left. The the UAW was a big, at least Ruther was a big booster of the early new left, and was trying to figure out how you know the UAW could both help it and also take advantage of it. I mean, so um, uh, Ruther was a, was a was a, a, a interesting, fascinating, and and I, an important figure. Um, and I and I would say this that I I came down um I, I do think the the metaphor i use is right he became a prisoner of the institutions he helped to construct 
because in fact, the whole industrial relations system that America created in the 40s and 50s became just, you know, uh, stolid, you know, and and just uh, unresponsive. And we see that, you know, with, uh, you know, efforts by Starbucks workers to, you know, get a contract and things of that sort. And he, and he, you know, it was, I don't know what, what could he have done to, to there were things, or yes, there were, there were moments along the way. And there were other people in his, in his uh, network, Emil Maisie, who remained the socialist uh, uh, so, uh, secretary treasurer of the UAW, and all sorts of other people who were right around him. And they were discussing this and, you know, what to do and what not to do. It's sort of, so he, so those were important decisions. I understand your argument that he became a prisoner of the institutions that he helped create as this rising labor leader within the UAW, eventually becoming the president of the UAW. On the other hand, what's fascinating to read about him is that he seemed like a master strategist in any context that he was put into. And so what's a tragedy about his career as a labor leader at this crucial time in American labor history is that he's always wanting to put forward uh, very bold demands, whether uh, it's around achieving social democratic, you know, a welfare state at home, or whether it's his proposal to retool auto factories to be able to produce the 500 planes a day during World War II. Whatever the case is, he's 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 trying to think. He's thinking creatively about how unions uh, can play a role in American society, but he's frequently stymied by the not just the institutions that he ends up creating, but just the, the narrow strictures of American politics in general. And so he's constantly putting forward bold demands and then having to reel them back. Uh, you know, he, when he's negotiating with uh, GM, uh, he's trying to get GM to open the books, uh, which, which had a radical character to that uh, demand. And then he's only can get so far with that. So he's, he's, he's constantly butting up against the strictures of American politics and American industrial relations. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, and I mean, you know, the, the argument of if you had a labor party, that would that would be a way to get around that. On the other hand, the I, I did. I, one thing I have become convinced of I, I maybe is just the the structures. Well, we all are of the electoral college and the winner take all. It just makes a, a labor party in America, so, you know, like so difficult. I mean, I, I may be impossible just the just given the, the the way the rules of the game are set up, where it's not the case in a in a parliamentary system. But yes, he he does. The other thing, by the way, that I that I came to figure out in right when I was writing this general, you know, General Motors like was like, okay, this is capitalism. Peter Drucker, you know, you know, you know, wrote about that, and and from like the late twenties till like the seventies. I mean, this is a long time. Like General Motors is the model for world for capitalism, and, and everyone, okay, and Ruther is trying to figure out how to fight that. That's that was the crucial thing. And he makes some, he wins some things and doesn't win others. But then around, you know, 1980 or so, it dawned on me, or maybe a little later, that, hey, maybe General Motors isn't the, the model, you know, and maybe, you know, other things like Walmart and other kinds of companies are. And that that also put into context, you know, Ruther's, Ruther's sort of politics, because he also came to see General Motors as, as that, that's the enemy. It's, it's stable. It's linked to a country it's you know it's it's bureaucratic you know and but you know but that is i mean in the last 40 years we've seen that's not in fact the nature of american capitalism um i would say one other thing 
um, I don't want to get ahead of you, but I, I've always thought, I've always wanted to study the commanding heights, you know, what are the commanding heights, you know, whether it's, whether it's, again, it's General Motors or, or whether it's Walmart or whatever it is. And that, that brings you into, you know, thinking about what's the nature of capitalism and also what's the nature of policy. Uh, and, uh, but we can get into that in a, in a bit. But, uh, but no, I, I actually, I have to say, I do think Ruther, that biography is my most successful academic intervention. Uh, I think, I mean, you know, there'll be, there'll be another biography, I'm sure, that'll be written at some point that'll be better. But, but it, it, it is, um, and it, and it appeared at a moment, 1995, when clearly labor's on the defensive in a big way. And, you know, I was sort of saying, well, here's what's possible, but this also, it had its limits. So, um, and again, as I say, most people, my, let me say this, my labor notes friends, who again, I, I really do respect, people like, Mike Parker and Jane Slaughter and Kim Moody and people like that, they liked the, the biography. They didn't see it as an apologia or anything like that. They And so I, that, that was the most important, a lot more important than, than Alan Brinkley or, or, or a Jeffrey Garden who reviewed it in, in the Washington Post and the New York Times. They, the people at Labor had said, okay, you got it. Yeah. Well, you certainly have, despite the fact that it's an admiring book, just in the sense that he was a, a, an incredible figure, as I mentioned, a very dynamic American labor leader. Um, you certainly don't hold back from criticizing Ruther throughout the book. And as yeah, many, many things. Yeah. He, he created a machine, which is which then became utterly corrupt. But it was it was the, the, the seeds of that corruption were there. He created this machine, which was undemocratic. Uh, he was he wouldn't tolerate really uh, opposition of any serious sort. And on race, uh, by the time by the sixties, he he had his his machine. You know, okay. Uh, you know the the various uh, white uh, regional directors. Wait, this is my my region. Don't don't try to you know uh, propose a, a, an African American to take it over. That's you know I've been working here for twenty years. So Ruther is very, but he really doesn't handle that very well at all. And later on in the in the sixties, he goes to Selma. He goes to Delano. He goes to you know uh, King's funeral. He's always there, and I think that reflects. Oh, this kind of racial tension and and that's going on in the plants and the UAW is un, unable to, to to figure that out. I had one insight, which was this: that what Drum Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement was asking for in 1969 were exactly the same things that Ruther was trying to win in 1939. But was failing. That is, that is, who's going to determine be, who becomes the, the, the gets a promotion uh, or a seniority or, or, or who's the foreman? I mean, Ruther and his people were trying to, to force the companies basically to, you know, create a kind of co-determination on the shop floor. And, you know, and, and workers would, in effect, you know, have a veto over what foremen were doing and et cetera. Drum is asking for the same thing. Of course, it's racialized, you know, and it's a revolutionary rhetoric, but it's the same thing. And and but by 1969, the UAW had made its peace with the kind of structures that that uh, that General Motors and other companies had created. And Drum, of course, uh, some listeners might be familiar with the book Detroit. I do mind dying. This is the formation of a, a radical sort of black nationalist tinge, but also uh, Marxist rank and file formations in the UAW, especially uh, in Detroit. You mentioned Ruther's shortcomings on racism. You also. Uh, have extremely harsh criticism of him uh, on his handling of the Vietnam War. And precisely because of the question that he's so close to the Democratic Party leadership uh, that he could not break from what 
Lyndon Johnson was doing on the Vietnam War until it was far too late for him to be doing so. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he yeah, he becomes, he, he gets himself linked to, to Kennedy and then to Johnson in particular. And, you know, and, and Johnson's doing a lot of things he wants on, you know, model cities and, 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 and various, you know, social, Medicare and Medicaid and all that stuff. But, but yeah, but, but he, and he, he, it's, oh, and, and of course in 64, I mean, Ruther had been, and all his people around him have been, they were in favor of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, you know, at the 1964 convention. They, 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 were, they were all in favor of that. They were, they were sending their, their kids, literally, to Mississippi to help that out. So then in the summer of 64, Ruther gets a phone call from LBJ. You gotta stop the MFDP, you know, and Fannie Lou Hammer and all that, you know, and Ruther just does LBJ's bidding. I mean, it's, a, it's one of the worst moments. And really, it's, it's the moment when the UAW, which had been held in good regard by the new left, by the, the authors of the Port Huron Statement, and, uh, you know, uh, and... Right, the Port Huron Statement is, is written on UAW property in Michigan, right? Yes, that's right. That's right. Written at Port Huron, which is a UAW summer camp, in effect, uh, de facto summer camp. And and, and, and all sorts of uh, sons and daughters of, of UAW officials were writing it. Uh, and that summer of 64, when Ruther does LBJ's bidding against the MFDP, I mean, that's a moment when there's a huge break between labor and the, and the civil rights forces. I mean, meaning people on the right, of course, you know, they were, but, but this is Ruther who's, who's doing it, doing it. And so that, that was really a uh, disaster. So then later on, uh, uh, when the Vietnam War becomes important, uh, Ruther again is, he's, he's, he's hanging in there with LBJ, really reinterpreting LBJ's war program in, in a, in a, utterly liberal and, and unconvincing and dishonest fashion. He's saying, well, LBJ is really for peace. You know, we're for peace, you know, anyway. And, 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 and there's some remarkable moments when, uh, when the sons and daughters, uh, Leslie Woodcock, who is the daughter of Leonard Woodcock, will become UAW president. And, and uh, Barry Bluestone, who's the daughter, who's the son of of Irving Bluestone, who's the vice president, they at at, at, at literally at a uh, I think it was a, a satyr. They just lay into Ruther. You know, you got to stop. The, you know, you, what do you do? You know, you got blood on your hands for fifty cents an hour. Uh, yeah, this is a this is a this is a again another moment when when the U when Ruther wanted to be a ro- allied with the new left. He wanted to be, but but this is this was this was you know a, a big break. So all of this gets at the importance of this kind of independence that is needed from uh, Democrat, the Democratic Party, and 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 just a, a, an ability on you know that when you read about Ruther's history from the beginning of the CIO until the New Left era, you're struck by the sense of how if he had managed to thread the needle and he had managed to be able to to absorb some of those energies of the of the New Left, you can imagine what kind of power the labor movement would have helped. Uh, you know, stoke within the new left. It, it would have impacted uh, the new left in maybe positive ways, and the new left would have impacted the labor movement in, in important ways, and it could have uh, wielded incredible power in American society. Uh, but but Ruther's Ruther's trajectory show, shows it becomes a kind of uh, opportunity that is uh, in many ways wasted. 
And it was not impossible. In other countries like Canada, and I think, uh, I think well, Great Britain to a degree, and uh, other, you know, the, where the new left and the, and the labor movement kind of, you know, came together. Now, actually, after about 40 years, <laughs> all sorts of new leftists became, you know, leaders of unions and stuff. And, and today there's, a, you know, lots of, uh, well, aging new lefters uh, who, who are, you know, probably just retiring. But, but yes, I think this was a, a decisive moment. Again, uh, you know, Ruther is the, is the best, well, almost the best of, of of the of the union movement and 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 his betrayals or failures, I think, would have huge consequences. Of course, there are other unions like eleven ninety nine and uh, you know a few you know others uh, the ILWU you know who were you know much better politically, but they were much smaller. You know, I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to the Dig as well. You should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig, like every episode of The Dig, is produced in partnership with Jacobin Magazine. Jacobin is an incredible publication, and you've probably seen a lot of what they've published online. But they also have a really beautiful print magazine. It comes out quarterly and has well over 100 pages packed with illustrations, infographics, and some of the best graphic design in the country. Dig listeners can join Jacobin subscribers developing socialist political thought and debate for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's entire back catalog. If you've never subscribed to Jacobin before, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin, all lowercase. That's bit.ly slash digjacobin, B-I-T dot L-Y, digjacobin, all lowercase. Let's move to your book, State of the Union, A Century of American Labor. Much of this book has to do with the idea of industrial democracy. And this is an old idea, but one that has been largely lost, as you write in the book, Um, And it really never ceases to amaze me that despite the centrality of work to our lives and despite the centrality of ideas like freedom and democracy to uh, American ideals, so many people see the workplace as a place where those rights get checked at the door. Uh, So do you feel like uh, the industrial democracy idea has any hope of being revived today? Ah, good question. In, I mean, there are people like Bernie Sanders who who use that use that phraseology, and there are others as well. It seems to be an antique language at this at this moment. I, you know, the the Starbucks baristas are not using that phrase in their you know, but but clearly it it was a powerful idea, uh, and it was it was sort of the solution to the labor question, and that was a. A, a phrase that was used from the 18, you know, 70s through the uh, 1930s. Uh, industrial democracy was sort of the left-wing um, solution. Uh, the, the, the more centrist solution was, you know, collective bargaining. I mean, liberals of that era thought, you know, collective bargaining, that's the solution to the labor, labor question. Steve Fraser writes very uh, well on that, on that issue. But clearly that wasn't the case. One of the, I, had, I think I had two big ideas in that book, State of the Union. I started writing it in Europe. Uh, I spent a year in Finland. And in Finland, 
the Finnish people I encountered. And I thought, I thought Finnish, look, Finland's great. You got a, a strong union movement. You got uh, good wages, you know, egalitarianism. They were completely bored with the industrial setup in Finland. With the, they were bored by it. They were just completely bored. I was like, oh, let's, let me talk about shop stewards. They were bored by it. What they were fascinated by was the American civil rights movement and things of that sort uh, and lots of European. And I thought, well, that's it. What's, so I actually got that. Okay, why is that? Uh, you know, and then I began to think, okay, what is the labor question? How do we think about that after the 30s? And I think a lot of it is in the world of civil rights. I mean, the civil rights is an utterly proletarian uh, a, a, a movement, you know, the, the rank and file of the work. And really, you know, the rights revolution, a lot of it is, you know, how do we get rights at work? Uh, Nancy McLean would write a great book about that. So I began, you know, I was thinking these two things, you know, the, the, the kind of the labor metaphysic on the one side and the rights ethos on the other. How do those two things intersect and to, to, what, to what degree do they do that? And so that's really the, the core of that book. And I, and I think what, what happened was, although not in the minds of everybody, but certainly in the minds of a lot of jurists and politicians and uh, other other intellectuals, you know, there, there's a counterposition between the unions with their sense of collective activity, uh, and and the civil and the rights world with, with you know with a sense of you know a, a kind of almost well at least legally individualistic you know you 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 know are you being discriminated or are you you know etc. And and then you 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 challenge that through the courts. And I and, and for a moment there, I think there was a. There was an opposition there. A guy named Rule Schiller, a very good labor, a very good um, a legal scholar, wrote a book called Forging Rivals, which was about the this con this conflict between collective principle and, and that of the the rights principle in the in the forties, fifties, sixties, and seventies, and how these two ways of thinking about justice come into conflict. And I think that that was what I was, I was, I, I think that's over, by the way. I think, I think today, uh, that dichotomy is over. Uh, maybe not in the courts, but it's over, I think, in a popular way. And, and when you look at the, the Starbucks baristas, I mean, they're, they're multicultural, multiracial. They don't, they don't see that, you know, they see, they see collective action as the, as the, uh, solution to their, to their, uh, you know, uh, personal, you know, the problems, et cetera. I don't think, I don't think we have that, but it, but it was a, it was a powerful, I think, dichotomy in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Well, so I'd like you to say more about that because, yes, one of the central arguments in, in State of the Union is about this rights, rights consciousness, which seems to be a, a product of the civil rights movement and everything else that happens in the 60s. Uh, but you make the point that the solutions that are that seem to be on offer for oppression based on race or sex or sexuality or whatever are sort of individualistic. Like, you know, there's a rise in, for example you know, legal mechanisms to address discrimination on the job. If you've been discriminated against at your job, what you need to do is, you know, file a lawsuit against your employer. And and so the the collective idea of, if, of the, that the solution to your your problems at work lie in collective organization with your coworkers, that is is sort of off the table. But you're saying that you think that that is back while while still tending to ideas of uh, rights around different kinds of oppression? Excuse me. Well, I, I, I mean, I think that was the, the case 
then, 40, 50 years ago. But I mean, I think today that's changed. That's changing. I mean, again, it's not, not in, in, in the law. You can still find it probably. And a lot of these things end up in the courts. But I mean, I think in popular consciousness. But of course, back in the, in the, in the, in the 50s and 60s and 70s, the union movement was in the doghouse in terms of um, uh, kind of its, its sense of, um, well, all that excitement of, of previous decades. It, it's viewed in a very, as a stolid and bureaucratic apparatus, mainly for white guys. And, and I think that, that was one of the reasons that, that the civil rights movement found itself often in opposition and, and not in much sympathy with the, with the union movement. Um, I was going to make one. Oh, let me just give you one example. Thurgood Marshall, who came out of the 30s uh, and was very much a, a, a labor a liberal, uh, in, a, in a case in the early 70s where a couple of uh, African-Americans, department score in San Francisco, uh, had, had sort of conducted a, a wildcat strike based on, on you know, the, the, the company and the union were racist. And they said, well, we're going to put out a picket line here and, and demand that. And then they were fired. Thurgood Marshall comes in and says, look, he says, yes, they should stay fired because the way they should, they should find a justice in, in, the, in, their, in, the, in a unionized workplace is through the union. And, you know, if, and if the union is willing to do it, they should agitate within the union to, to have a, you know, a, a, a different majority. Now, that was, that was just reflective of a much earlier way of thinking about things, which Marshall represented. Later on, that would definitely not be the case, but, but that was, a, it was called the Emporium Capwell case in San Francisco in the early 70s. And I think it reflected, uh, and of course, people saw other 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 jurists. I think um, I think uh, Hugo Black was still on the court then, and he was he, he had a different point of view. He, he he said no no no. He was much more of a civil rights specifically a kind of uh, you know uh, pri- privileging that, um, and he he voted the other way. But I think that that. that there was a conflict there, and I think that had lots of consequences. And and that book is partly uh, structured around that. Now, I think, as I say, I, I want to make clear. I think that's that's over. A lot of that's over today. It's it's not the, it's not still the case. And so, is that because there is a, a a sort of synthesis of collective action as the solution to our problems, while also taking the lessons of this rights revolution? Yeah. Well, it's all, it reflects the fact that the, the courts have become much less sympathetic to various kind of rights claims. That's for one thing, you know. And secondly, uh, the, I think the fact that the, uh, the yes, the, without, without a, without a, um, a, a kind of collective uh, a transformation of the, of the whole sort of realm of work, then these rights claims are going to be, if you, even to win, uh, it's kind of Pyrrhic victory. Uh, Judith Stein wrote a, her book, Running Steel, Running America, which is about the steel industry. And there was a big case uh, that the NAAC put forward demanding, you know, better seniority lines for African-Americans and uh, and all sorts of ends of discrimination against both the companies and the union. And they won that. And that was good. That was a good thing they won it because it, it had been discriminatory. But the, but the actual impact was nil. That is, the number of good jobs for African-Americans was <laughs> declined anyway because of the decline of the steel industry. And, and you know, you, it was sort of a Pyrrhic victory. And I think that, well, with the deindustrialization of, of, of a lot of America, that, that I, that's become very manifest and we have to do something about that. So I think that that's one reason this distinction has, has ended. You write in State of the Union and elsewhere about the major shift that took place in the American labor movement in 1995 when John Sweeney became the president of the AFL-CIO, which helped end the Cold War paradigm that had so 
dominated the official labor leadership before then and had made labor this kind of hidebound institution that uh, at its highest levels was, for example, tied to uh, supporting the Vietnam War and uh, but just did not have that sense of the spirit and life of the various social movements that came along throughout the Cold War period. And then that changes in 1995 when John Sweeney from uh, SEIU is elected president of the AFL-CIO, which then uh, produced space in public discourse for uh, quote-unquote labor intellectuals like you, uh, because now the AFL-CIO and many unions were interested in hearing what you had to say. And when I read your reflections on this, I first thought how lonely it must have been to be a labor intellectual writing these books, a uh, big biography of Walter Ruther, histories of the CIO, etc., and have the official labor movement have zero interest in what you were working on all of the time. It must have been a really lonely period for about two decades for you. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. No, that's that's correct. I I never had any expectation that that the, the union movement was going to listen to me. There were there other there were other people of, of my generation who were more you know sociologists and such who who had some connections, but I didn't. No, I didn't. No, the the Sweeney. No, what, okay, so Sweeney comes along and. This was this was the absolute nadir of the of the of the union movement in terms of its public uh, reputation. I mean, I, I wrote this book on Clinton, and it's so clear that then the you know in the early nineties that the, the all of the Clintonites, whatever their politics, they just couldn't take labor seriously in any way, shape, or form. But Sweeney comes along, and at first there was a there was a certain amount I remember of, of sort of cynicism. Oh, this is a palace coup, you know. Oh, this means nothing. I remember that, and I remember and Steve Fraser and I, and he just finished a biography of Sidney Hillman, and I just finished one of Ruther. We thought, no, th- no, you know, maybe, okay, Sweeney's got all sorts of problems, sure, but but let's let's run with this. Let's see if we can something you know dramatic can happen here, and so we. Um, you know, organized some teach-ins and, and wrote about it and, and, and found a lot of support, uh, among, among really, you know, left-wing, lefty sort of, well, all sorts of people who were thirsting, who, who wanted to have a relationship to the youth, to the unions. You know, they wanted to be, to have a kind of coalition there, you know, and, uh, uh, we had this very big, um, teaching at, at Columbia. Uh, which university, which was really uh, uh, very exciting. Betty Friedan was there, and Richard Rorty, and and Cornell West, and Sweeney, and uh, Sweeney liked it. He, they 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 liked this fact. They loved it. I remember speaking of labor intellectuals. Though, I do remember this one thing. So so the people like uh, uh, the industrial relations experts of this era. And some of them were pretty good. Uh, they, they weren't all bad, like Thomas Koken at MIT and others. I remember at one point they said, I don't know where they said it in print or to me, he said, we were the, we're the labor intellectuals. What are you, who are you guys, you know? And, and, and by the way, it wasn't just people who'd written biographies of labor leaders who were involved in these teachings. There were, you know, uh, people like Eric Lott, who was my colleague in Virginia, who was a literary critic and, and all sorts of people, you know, and uh, Cornell West, he's not a labor guy and, and Richard, you know, so, so, uh, I remember they, they, we're the labor intellectuals. What are you guys doing? But, but I thought, I thought, I did think that, that this was showing that the, you know, the broad, the broad, Variegated 
American sort of cultural social left, you know, uh, which should be reengaged with labor. And I, and I and you know Sweeney, you know Sweeney changed some positions, uh, you know, on the on the Iraq War, on on immigration, uh, you know, on on all sorts of questions. And and I think we did have the the the, the Berlin Wall, which had, you know had been you know in existence for so long between the the uh, American left and the labor movement, it, it began to crumble, and uh, a lot of it has crumbled. So I think that, uh, and then of course the union movement began uh, labor. What's it called? A union summer, which was a way of getting young people involved, and and so I think that to a degree that that was a good moment. Now it turned out, I, I'm sorry to say, that Sweeney, despite a lot more energy that he brought all sorts of new people in, in fact it didn't lead to a revival of of, of unionism, and there were some notable failures. The, the Sweeney people tried to have a a new farm worker campaign that didn't work. Uh, Etc. Uh, so you know the the hard structures of American capital and of of of, of, of politics. You know uh, uh, he beat his head against a brick wall to a degree. And how do you feel about the state of the labor intellectual today? It seems like there are many more of us who could be who could qualify to varying degrees of such a thing. But many of us are sort of sitting. We we have plenty of labor intellectuals at this point, but I'm not sure there's enough. Uh, there's enough people on the ground who, uh, in the shop floors, who are serving as the sort of uh, cadre of a of a revived American labor movement, who can give us labor intellectuals something to write articles about and make podcasts about. No, I mean, right? The people have been writing about labor. Yeah, there's a lot of that going on. I, I, the labor intellectual, maybe that that phrase is a little pretentious. Uh, I'm not sure. I want to exactly know what I want to do with it. Uh, let me say, C. Wright Mills, I think. At least invented the, the term. He in 1947 he wrote this essay in commentary. Actually, he he visited a UAW convention, and he said, "Oh, at this convention there are all sorts of really kind of how do you put them healthy and 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 constructive labor intellectuals, not the neurotic sort you find in New York, but you know, but the you know." And I think he was referring to people like Nat Weinberg and and uh, uh, Brendan Sexton, who were kind of, you know, staffers who were, who were, who'd been socialists and they were, you know, working out, you know, all sorts of new deals and new things. Um, uh, and, 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 and then I, I wrote a piece on the UAW strike at the, uh, or the TA strike at, at, at Berkeley. And I said, uh, at, at the University of California, I said, Mills would have really been surprised to know that there were thousands of, of, of intellectuals on the picket line, you know, uh, you know, and, and, you know, and, and maybe the, and the UAW itself was, was full of uh, you know kind of the the, the more Stalin figures. I, I'm not sure what I don't. That's a good question. I don't quite know how to define that that labor intellectual. Anybody who writes about labor, we've had a whole generation, couple generations of labor historians who've who've written about it. Uh, you know, very many many excellent things. Uh, was E. P. Thompson a labor intellectual? I mean, you know, uh, or, or do you need to be connected to a union? You know, do you need to be on the research staff in some way? I, so it's a I don't know. What do you think? I I, I don't I don't know exactly what to where. Where to, where, to, where to draw the lines here on this question? Well, it seems like there are many of us, particularly through institutions like left magazines like Jacobin, which have we have emphasized re, uh, re, re, you know, writing about forgotten episodes of American labor history and, and insisting that there was something very important going on there. And also just generally working to make the idea of belonging to a union a cool thing, uh, a thing that, that, that young, hip people uh, should aspire to be, that, that the labor is not some 
hidebound institution, uh, like, you know, especially at a time when so many young people are suffering from low wages and being squeezed economically in every other way and work is terrible. Union, you know, when we hear about the heyday of American unionism, we think, oh, that, that sounds great. We could really use some of that uh, in our own lives these days. And so, uh, you know, I think that has hopefully produced some level of young people who are going into the shops to become shop floor activists. And it's also, uh, as I mentioned before, has created some number of us who uh, are, you know, read lots of books about the labor movement, follow it very closely, uh, will we'll write about whatever is going on, reflect on it, but are, but are fundamentally uh, in need of movement at the shop floor level in order for us to have things to write about and reflect on. Right. Yeah. You need. Yes. You. You need. You need a not just an institution, but a kind of movement, a movement-oriented institution. Right. I mean, we, so we have in one sense we have tons and tons of them uh, today, uh, uh, and and some are some are you know some are self-taught, some are autodidacts, and other come out of the academy. Uh, I would I would say this by the way, but, but I've always a, a little, I'm a little bit not irritated, but slightly irritated when someone oh Nelson Lichtenstein, the labor historian, and. I'm not to, so happy about that because you can't be a an historian of the of, of working people without also being the historian of you know capitalism and culture and, and politics and everything else. I mean, it, it, you, you, I think the the very phrase labor history assumes a sort of self contained thing, and I think that's less true today than it's ever been. And if you're trying to think about you know. What's going to happen to uh, the standard of living of Americans, you know, in, in, uh, in whatever their sector, you have to think about the nature of that industry and the social policies that will that'll, that'll, that'll govern it. So, uh, so I, uh, I'm a little bit, um, I, find, I find the phrase uh, labor historian, not, 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 and of course, they even, maybe even labor intellectual, uh, a, a little bit, you know, I, I'm a, a little, put a little bit of a question mark next to those, you know. Uh, let's talk about Walmart. Uh, around this period, after the Sweeney victory the, as the head of the AFL-CIO, you then turned your attention to Walmart, uh, and you described it, as you mentioned earlier in this conversation, that you were previously focused on GM because w to understand GM was to understand American capitalism. Uh, and then you realized that, the, that things had changed, and now you had to understand a company like Walmart in order to understand the shape of American capitalism and global capitalism. So can you talk about that shift in your work and the shift to understanding uh, and studying things like uh, supply chains and uh, your your time, as you mentioned in, in a contest of ideas, you call yourself a supply chain tourist. Uh, so you're, you're going to these places, you know, you, you, you mentioned uh, touring the uh, River Rouge factory in Detroit to understand what this giant palace of American industrialism is. Uh, and then you're going to China uh, in the industrial cities to see the supply chain at work there. So talk about that transition that you made. Right. Yeah, I wasn't the only one who was sort of like caught by surprise. The editors of Fortune magazine had had in their Fortune 500, well, they, they sort of excluded the retailers, you know, up to the year 1995. And then finally, in 1995, they, they, they like me, I guess, I, I was at the same moment. Uh, they said, well, hey, I think there's some big companies here, maybe we should put them. And bingo, they put the retailers in, and Walmart pops up number four in terms of sales. And I think by 2001, it's number one. 
uh, both in sales and uh, employees. So as again, uh, I'm thinking we got to talk about the commanding heights and figure out what's going on there. And so I, I, I remember the late '90s thinking well, something's happening with Walmart here. We gotta we gotta look at this. Uh, you know, other big retailers like that. And so I began to turn myself toward that. Then when I got out here to to, to California. There was a big strike in 2003 in in L.A. Uh, in the grocery industry. And Walmart didn't have any stores at all in L.A., but all the grocery companies said, "Uh-oh, Walmart's coming to town. They're going to have low wages. We got to, you know, take a take a really tough strike here and 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 reduce really labor costs, uh, you know, so that we can compete with Walmart." It was a long strike, a long and pretty bitter strike. So in the middle of that strike, we ought to have a, we ought to have, we ought to have a conference on Walmart because that's the reason for this strike. And so uh, we made a few. It was very easy. Made a few phone calls and 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 and, and we're able to we get a very successful conference on Walmart. And it was a you know the New York Times covered it and and all sorts of people came and it was a kind of a kind of indicated yes this is this is a this is a, this is something to study because um, uh, what's going on here? Yeah. Well, and I was shocked to learn in the contest of ideas that. Your conference was so successful that a the Walmart CEO Lee Scott H Lee Scott felt the need to essentially uh, respond point by point to many of the issues that were brought up in your conference in a major address that he gave. Uh, so you you clearly uh, you struck a nerve at the highest levels of the C suites in uh, in Bentonville. Yeah, I did. I did. That's true. I mean, again, I, I never, never, ever interviewed any any current manager at, at Walmart. I guess what, by the way, one of my, I guess my my uh, academic or archival or whatever you want to call it, uh, laws is never interview a current manager. They will just give you the PR. Always interview, especially those who've been fired or retired. Uh, and that's what I did at Walmart. I, I found the people who've been fired or, or, or just retired. Anyway, and uh, had long conversations with them in the Ozarks and things like that. Um, yeah, so, uh, right. So, yeah, yeah, Walmart, okay. I, I had to... And and, and then I, it turned out that that Peter Drucker had been on to to um, retail long before he wrote some he wrote a series of four really important big essays in the Fortune magazine in the sixties on on distribution and said this is the dark continent of American capitalism no one knows what goes on in the world of distribution so anyway I thought it, I thought Walmart was important and uh, and clearly any company that employs uh, you know a million and a half people is, is an important company. So I, 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 we had a conference, we had a book came out of that. And then I, then I went off to China and, uh, I remember, I remember going, we were in Guangdong province. We were in Shenzhen, Shenzhen, the Bia, the big city there, uh, brand new city. And we, we, we were in a taxi on a Sunday afternoon, driving across this city for like an hour and the place was bustling and there were machine shops and there were clearly people, you know, doing, and this is a Sunday afternoon. I said, this is what Detroit was like in 1925, you know? And uh, so we, we toured some factories there and uh, uh, supplier factories to Walmart and toured some, sort of toured some Walmart stores. And, and, and I began to think, yeah, right. I began to think, yes. And then of course, by the way, it's interesting, interesting the way the new ideas, the phrase supply chain, I had never heard of that until I think of like 2002 or three. I'd never heard of that. And uh, sociologists knew about it. And uh, some, a friend of mine who was, said, oh yeah, I went to a conference on supply chains in, somewhere in California and I, I'd never heard of it. And so I thought, yeah, yes, I'm a supply chain tourist. I've been, and I, I wrote that, as I said, I've been to the three, 
the three most important nodes of, of, of international capitalism. The, the Ford Rouge plant, you know, founded in 1919, etc. And then Bentonville, you know, now this headquarters of Walmart. And then Guangdong province, which is where I, mean, I think there are about 200 million people who are turning out, you know, it's the workshop of the world. And, um, and you know, anyway, so... Um, uh, yeah, supply chains. Yeah, this and 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 that was. I was a little ahead of the game on some of that uh, because, but now it's it's obviously so important, and we are, we're all concerned about that. Um, so so Walmart. I mean, Walmart was the dystopia, the capitalist dystopia. I mean, it, everything was the total opposite of GM. I mean, it was and and you and, and it was successful. I mean, and, and it's a, Walmart missed the New Deal. It missed the feminist movement. It missed the civil rights movement. I mean, it was up there in Northwest Arkansas. I mean. <laughs> which was like this t- utterly benighted place. And, you know, and bingo, it became this gigantic uh, institution. So, um, yeah, it's, it was it was a good thing for me to, to get into that because I was able to transition out of a kind of a, this older model of, of American capitalism to, to what's going on new. And then from that, I became interested in fissured employment and, 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 and sectorial bargaining and, and all sorts of questions of that sort. And then, and then public policy, too, public policy as well. Well, this was my next question because I wanted to ask what you uh, learned about the changing nature of American and global capitalism means for labor strategy. So you write in that essay, Supply Chain Tourist, the essence of the 21st century labor question, as well as its resolution, no longer resides at the point of production in a struggle between workers and the owners of the factories in which they labor. Instead, the site of value production in the contemporary world is found at every link along a set of global supply chains in which the manufacturer and the warehouse operator, the ports and the shipping companies, the retailers and their branded vendors jockey for power and profit. To tame this system, we'll need ideas and institutions, social movements, and new legal structures that are truly global in their ambition and effectiveness. And I hear that and think that while it may be true, uh, it, it makes it an even more daunting task than as a, let's say, a, a aspiring trade union militant who is listening to this podcast. Uh, they think, well, what can I do then if I'm a, a, a driver at UPS or, a, you know, uh, trying to organize my coworkers at an Amazon warehouse. I mean, I'm I'm just a a speck in this global uh, uh, chain of uh, this global supply chain. What what can I accomplish as a union militant on the job? It seems like not much. Yeah, well, right. Well, two two things about that. I mean, I, I do think actually you can you can you can accomplish something as a union militant. But one thing is, I guess the conceptual sense was that that production, which had always been you know privileged by everybody, capitalists and, and, and worker and, and, and labor historians and workers, you know, but production, the definition of production was, was broader. It had to do with the whole supply chain and that you had to see that as sort of a unit and a, a very clever unit on the part of the capitalists because they, they control it, but they don't have the legal or even moral responsibility for what's going on there. And, that, and so that was, that was one thing to sort of see that. But the second thing is that obviously the way that, that to accomplish that, you, you, your definition of what the labor movement seeks to do and accomplish has to be much broader, and in, in involving not just the organization of the workers in any one in one unit of that supply chain, but but policies that will that will uh, have the effect of, of taming the supply chain or, or, or ameliorating it, or maybe even making you know making it more much more democratic. And um, 
Uh, and that's where you get into questions like trade policy, you know, which I always was completely bored with for many years and uh, uh, or, or all sorts or, or other other things or health, you know, health policy, etc. So, I mean, the reason that those workers at the Amazon distribution center should still organize, even if they don't have the leverage to change everything, is that there's no substitute for organized people who talk to each other and think about things together and have some resources that can have an impact on the political and and or cultural social world that there's no there's no no substitute for that I mean, the the you know the the only reason we know about some of these conditions in some of these places is because you had a group of people whether they were you know formally organized or not who told us about it you know otherwise it's all it's all uh, invisible i mean that's why we know a lot about conditions in auto plants in Detroit, but not much in the transplants, you know, in Tennessee, they're, un, you know, unorganized. So, um, so you have, that's, that you have to do that. Well, I, I, I was, I have to say, I, I did not uh, expect the, the Ukraine war. I didn't expect, well, I, I knew that China was not going to be a, a, a lovey-dovey friend of the U.S., but I didn't expect the, the rise in tensions. And clearly today, the issue on the agenda is how do we, how do we make these supply chains uh, more uh, predictable and maybe more, whatever, um, uh, you know, better for the United States, certainly in, in a kind of just a national security sense, but also a, a labor sense. And that's on the agenda in a way it definitely wasn't on the agenda, you know, 20 years ago or 15 years ago. So you made this turn towards writing about and studying and understanding Walmart as the kind of paradigmatic company of American and global capitalism in the 90s and 2000s. I assume you might have the sense that that moniker has shifted from Walmart, as important as Walmart still is, to Amazon. And now Amazon is playing that same role of revolutionizing global supply chains and, and totally transforming the way that uh, that American and global capitalism is done at this point. Yeah, they aren't entirely different companies. There's there are many things that are they they both depend on on really a trans-Pacific supply chain. They both the core of both of companies is is the the warehouse, the the distribution center. That's the core thing. All of the Walmart executives came out of logistics. Uh, that's not quite true for Amazon, but the, but clearly the 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 the, 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 the competitive advantage is the is the warehouse. Uh, but then again, oh, yes, Amazon is uh, is like its own kind of created its own entire um, marketplace for for tens of thousands of other firms, hundreds of thousands, which which basically have to pay tribute to to, to Walmart like a like a robber baron of the middle 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 ages uh, to sell their wares, you know. Whereas uh, Amazon didn't didn't do I mean, excuse me, uh, Walmart didn't do that. Amazon does do that. Uh, so uh, yes, the, the, there's a um, there's a difference, but they, but but some things are fundamentally the similar, which is basically they're both in the business of getting goods from uh, uh, suppliers, mainly abroad, although sometimes here, uh, and squeezing those suppliers, you know, and using that, using that, that, that distribution nexus to squeeze them and then make, uh, you know, and then you have a kind of low wage, uh, non-union workforce and, and, you know, then make enormous profits. Uh, so there's, there, there are similarities uh, between the two, but I think, but, but who knows, Amazon is moving off into the cloud and computer services. And so maybe it's just transforming its, its whole business model there. You have an essay in a contest of ideas about 
the Communist Party in the United States and its relationship to the American labor movement. You say that the question has always been whether or not communists uh, deserve to be a part of the constellation of players and ideas within the labor movement or whether they're it's just there uh, it is uh, unacceptable you know they're unacceptable ideas and unacceptable people to be included and thus need to be uh rooted out um and it seems to me that at this point in the 21st century uh when we are in this moment of nascent rebirth of american socialism that this is one of the key things that today's radicals are are fighting for or at least uh, radicals who come from let's say an institution like jacobin or a podcast like the dig uh, that we are trying to advocate for socialism's rightful place within the American world of ideals or people who are young radicals who are organizing in their workplaces uh, and within their unions, uh, that, that they are uh, one of the in, in, in important things that they're arguing for is, is establishing that, that, that people who uh, believe in the socialist ideal have a rightful place in the shop floor and in uh, the the labor movement, and it seems like what, however you identify with your own uh, politics, whether it's as a socialist or as a social democrat, that you at least believe that there needs to be a kind of robust mix of competing ideas in the labor movement and in the body politic in order for us to uh, advance in a progressive direction as a society. Is that accurate? Well, yes, that yes, that is accurate. I, and I, I, my ideas have changed to a degree in, in this sense. Fifty years ago, whenever I, when I was back in the Berkeley in the in the in the Trotskyist world, uh, you know, we 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 we, we had this idea. I, look, the communists. I mean, this is in some ways this is linked to the cold, just the whole Cold War world. But and I think actually the the a certain kind of Trotskyist uh, writing helped provide ideological ammunition for the much more conservative cold warriors. But anyway, that the communists were, were not, were, you know, the, the, the counterfeit left. They were, they were products of, a, of another, of a, wherever they came from. They'd not been born on the Lower East Side or born in Kansas, but nevertheless, they, they ideologically linked themselves so closely to a, to a, a monstrous regime uh, that that made them not part of the left and therefore, you know, exclude them. And although the, although on civil libertarian grounds, the, this uh, tradition I, I identify with w- was not in favor of McCarthyism and stuff like that. Now, having said that, I think today, I, I, I've changed my mind in, in this respect, that yes, it's true that the, for all sorts of reasons that the communists were identified fundamentally with the Soviet Union. And in some ways, that was one reason they, they hung together for, for a lot longer than the socialists did in that period. But when you look at every other aspect of the communists, they were they were part of the left. They were you know they were workers or, or African Americans or, or women or they, and they, what they were interested in was what the what the left was interested in the, the popular front. And so I guess maybe at the end of the Cold War, thirty years, and you know I'm willing to sort of put that identification with the Soviet Union in a little bit of a box, you know, and, and sort of look beyond that. And so uh, I do think it was a, a albatross, uh, worse than an albatross, uh, uh, the, you know, around the neck of the American left. But, but uh, today, uh, you know, I, clearly, um, how should I put it? Um, I do think different ideas about the good society are important. And once you debate them, I'm not, I'm not a kind of mushy kind of person. And I'm in favor of taking votes, you know, and sometimes, you know, and, uh, but, uh, I, you know, I do think we're in a world where, you know, a kind of 
popular front is sort of essential, you know, and, and there's no getting around that. Uh, when I, back in, in the old day, the popular front was a, was a, was a negative idea because it, it meant that you mushed up your ideas and uh, historians like Alan Wald and others have, have, you know, argued definitively against that. But I think today there's no getting around it. I'm not familiar with all the debates taking place in DSA, but apparently it's quite sectarian and uh, you know, that's, that's too bad. We can say that at the very least, there is a uh, robust internal debate within DSA about the ideas that are going to be guiding strategy going forward. You recently retired from your position as professor of history at the University of California, Santa Barbara, uh, yet somehow in your retirement, you seem to be managing to continue to be quite productive. And you have a new book that is coming out soon on the Clinton years. Uh, can you explain what you're up to in that project? Yeah, I mean, yeah, your retirement. I mean, one of the great things about, you know, academia is a good job and you retire and then you just keep doing what you're doing anyway, you know, and just, just have to, don't have to go to class as much or something. So, uh, yeah. So I, um, a few several years ago, um, Judith Stein, who'd been a good, not a close friend, but a good colleague, she died and she'd been writing and she was writing about, you know, Political economy and policy uh, in the post-war period, and she she had this, she had a book on on the Clinton years. She was doing she hadn't gotten very far on it; she just begun it. And the people, uh, her agent and others, asked me to take it over, and I did. And then I, then I sort of jumped into it, and I said, "Okay, you know, this is a period when the Cold War ends. That's important. There was a lot of discussion going on um, about uh, industrial policy and about varieties of capitalism." I, as I looked into it, I, I didn't think the contemporary narrative on Clinton, which is very fixed and, and maybe very satisfying for a lot of people, which is, which is Clinton is, an, is a new Democrat, a DLC neoliberal, and that's it. You know, I mean, that, 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 and, and uh, I don't think that's actually quite right. I think he became that, and I'm very critical of him, of course, but I think there was a period there at the end of the Cold War when um, uh, there were a lot of ideas in play. Uh, about how to restructure American cap American society and capitalism, Clinton didn't have the the votes or the power, or and he had the opposition. He couldn't do it, uh, and I think he then moves in a in a in a very bad direction. I, I would say this. I would say this. I, I actually got the idea for this book thirty years ago when I was in Helsinki on a Fulbright, and I'd read. Uh, 1993, I'd read the New York Times whenever I get the chance, and it was just full of these articles on the health care plan and which which sectors of capital was for it and against it and which sectors of the Republican Party were for it and against it. They weren't all against it. And I, and I think this is like the NRA. This is like the early years of the Great Depression when they're trying to you know reorganize things. So that was the very first idea. Then I, I put that in abeyance. So I got it back into it. And, uh, you know, I, and I, and I, t I think that I think one should take seriously some of the idea, industrial policy ideas which were floating around and people like... Uh, Ira Magaziner and Robert Reich and Clinton himself were, were, were toying around with it at the very least. And uh, then, then they are opposed and, and defeated unquestionably by the Robert Rubens and others. The, 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 uh, uh, so, I mean, Rubin, by the way, is, again, all these people become caricatures. Uh, I don't think it's any in any way shape a, a, an apology on my part to, to see them as a little more complicated. So Rubin 
Goldman Sachs, you know, Robert Rubin, he's a staunch welfare state Democrat. I mean, he wants the welfare state. He just thinks, he, just, he thinks he, 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 more important is the absolute mobility of capital. He thinks that's, you know, that's essential. But he's for the welfare state. That the mobility of capital is actually how you are going to fund the welfare that's, state. Yeah, right? well, that, yeah, that, right. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. Goldman Sachs needs to be able to make money uh, but that that it's essentially a trickle down, like a, a update of a Reaganomics kind of argument that like, but they don't start out by saying we're going to we're going to you know, let Goldman Sachs run free and we're going to destroy the welfare state. It's no, we're going to let Goldman Sachs run free and the welfare state. Everybody, there's going to be shared prosperity you know, across the board. And that's obviously not what happens. Right. Yeah. I mean, and actually, I mean, I mean, I, also, also, I get into Wall Street. Wall Street is in favor of uh of um, a kind of uh, they're de- uh, much of de- uh, not all of it, but there's a substantial proportion of Wall Street that's Democrats. They're Democrats, and the reason is they they they're into real estate, uh, and they they like real estate, and they also they don't care about taxes. I mean, they, taxes are not where they're they don't care how high the taxes are. They, they they they're willing to have high taxes. That's not their problem. They want they want the they want they want mobility of capital and and open you know and trade and, and you know and and so the Goldman Sachs is really big on. On uh, finance, on capitalizing and financing the Chinese uh, uh, state-owned enterprises as they become privatized. A- anyway, I get into some of this, and I, I think there's a, there's a narrative about the Clintons, which is there, and and lots of truth to it, <laughs> but I, it's not the whole thing. And 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 I think I think it does a disservice to the American left today. Does does this service to the people in the Biden? The lefties in the Biden administration who are trying to work out, you know, a new kind of industrial policy to just say, oh, Clinton walked into the White House as a neoliberal, you know, et cetera, because he didn't. And so the same issues that are confronting him and, and defeated him 30 years ago, you know, are right there today uh, as we, you know, you can read the New York Times in the morning about the CHIPS Act, things like that. So anyway, I got into that and I found many, uh, many interesting things uh, going on. I, I mean, I think that... Uh, Clinton was a terrible leader of the Democratic Party. He he divided the party time and time again on trade issues. I think NAFTA was absolutely a blunder. It, he, from his point of view, from the point of view of politics, there was absolutely no need to do NAFTA. But he did it anyway, and maybe you know, at the behest of, of 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 his Wall Street advisors. I mean, it was a it was a blunder of the first order. Uh, although I, I just one thing for for your listeners, it's what's interesting is Clinton does Clinton and Hillary. Don't go into the doghouse of the left <laughs> until 1996. It's they were still held in a certain regard. Clinton was very good at defending and explaining Obamacare uh, in the in the in the you know 2012 etc. And Hillary was you know kind of respected as a well even on the left as you know as kind of a, okay doing okay as a Secretary of State. It's Bernie Sanders who comes along. He doesn't have to attack them. He just says this is what I'm for, and that just makes them look terrible. You know, I think it's even Bernie Sanders much more than the Republicans who, of course, have been after them for, for decades. But it's Bernie who who just he just says, you know, this is what I'm for. And I think that was a whole uh, enormous tribute to Bernie Sanders in 2015 and 16. And remind us what the name of your book is and when it's coming out. In September of 2023, Princeton will publish A Fabulous Failure, The Clinton Presidency and the Transformation of American Capitalism. So you just finished this book on the Clinton years, and you seem like you still have quite a bit of uh, writing and scholarship left in you, but you have retired from your position. So assumedly, at some point, you're going to be looking back on your uh, long and storied career in uh, labor history. And I wonder 
how you feel about the current state of the discipline of labor history in 2023? Well, I think that um, it's fairly healthy, partly in the sense that I think it's it has it's a kind of imperial discipline. It wants to bring everything under its you know under its its umbrella in a way, and so you know uh, historians like Sven Beckert writing uh, you know uh, Empire of Cotton. Uh, you know, I think he's sort of a he's sort of a labor historian. You know, he's he's concerned about that, or or people doing a cultural history of, of various sorts, and, and the feminist scholars. I think I think it's 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 sort of spread out. The the yeah, the number of labor history jobs per se is you know there aren't there, but the number of people who are sort of trained in a kind of labor history, or at least with a labor metaphysic in mind, is is there, and they're and they're doing they're they're you know having an influence. My grad students, I mean, for whatever reason, I they they ended up doing work on corporations, on on finance, on on policy, but they were all kind of you know came at it from the point of view of the questions that labor historians would 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 ask. So um, I think it's fairly healthy, although as a as a as a kind of institutionalized subdiscipline. You know, with which you know maybe there it's 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 uh, fraying at the edges, just because it's it's taking on many different questions, you know. And I'm very much against trying to police the boundaries of labor history. I think that would be a mistake. Nelson Lichtenstein, thank you very much. Delighted to have had this conversation with you. Nelson Lichtenstein is the author or editor of 18 books and research professor in the Department of History at the University of California, Santa Barbara. A Fabulous Failure, The Clinton Presidency and the Transformation of American Capitalism, co-authored with the late historian Judith Stein, will be published by Princeton University Press in September. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, Things are only settled by the continuous struggle between capital and labor, the capitalist constantly tending to reduce wages to their physical minimum and to extend the working day to its physical maximum, while the working man constantly presses in the opposite direction. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. We are recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theorio Frankos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives and newsletters at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio. And please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever, please also rate and review us. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling other people about the pod. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. Music.